You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, guys. Welcome to another episode of The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins. We've got a real gun in the room today. I can't wait to start. Today, we're talking license valuations, how to get one, why you would get one, what it's going to cost. And really just the environment right now, when we get that bank report uh, come through. To help us out, we've got Mike Valletta back in the studio. Thanks for coming in, Mike. Thanks, Trent. Good to see you this morning. Valuations is something that I'm really keen on because it can be the gateway to possibilities of your next investment, understanding your equity, and really can either stop or start your next investment goals. Great topic and dear to my heart has been license value for over the last two decades. It's well worth explaining to people what benefit we can give to people either in the form of valuation report or even general consultancy. Great. Obtaining a property valuation is well worth it, but in many cases with lenders, and we will get onto the lenders, but in most cases with lenders, they determine where the instruction goes. So you as a member of the public cannot come to me and ask for valuation and present it to the bank, which used to happen 15, 20 years ago. So you used to be able to do that. Correct. Some people might think you still can, so you can't do that now. You can't. In New Zealand, you can, okay. but in Australia, you can't. The banks okay. dictate or determine, should I say, where the valuation instructions go to. What's the basis of that? Were there some issues in the past of things getting done that maybe wouldn't have been done, or uh, look, do the, do the look, banks just have their set panel and that's who they stick to? Correct. And if you go back over the recent history, the last decade, there was a whole host of valuation service providers in Australia. Okay. Uh, numbers of them. The banks now have reduced those numbers in terms of the panels that they can provide and they can maintain some control in terms of quality of advice okay. and reliability of advice. So they are now farming it out to a smaller group of people that generally have better trained licensed valuers that have local expertise. And I think that's really important to be stretched as a residential valuer from Mandra to Yangship. Uh, it's very difficult to understand those different market parameters. So mm. in most cases, with most large valuation firms, they have valuers that control maybe six to eight suburbs. They see every sale. They drive past them daily. They speak to the agents. So they're right up to date with market conditions. So we've got a bit of arm's length situation there. I think that leads into a point that I want to talk about, the difference between an agent appraisal and a licensed valuation. Effectively, the definition of market value should be the same, willing buyer, willing seller, yeah. which acting knowledgeably, prudently, and without compulsion. However, we're the only property professionals in the process that I think are 100% unbiased in some respect. We don't stand to gain anything from you, unlike, say, a bank, a broker, a real estate agent who ultimately wants to list and sell your property. They've got a transaction to close. Correct. And that's where they sort of benefit from in terms of that's where they generate their fees. Mm. Our fee is providing you the best unbiased advice up front. This is fee for service. There's no fee on completion or on commission. It's just please do this for us. And obviously you have that prerogative to make the call based on your experience. Correct, Trent. It's our professional opinion based on a set of facts in the form of evidence, market conditions, buyer demand and likely selling price within a reasonable period. For example, that reasonable period in say Peppermint Grove may be up to six months because of that length or that size of that market being smaller mm. and that price of that market. Whereas in a mortgage belt, it will be up to three months. So the value has to determine in terms of the likely selling period and the likely selling price. So it's not to say that an agent won't give you a good appraisal. They're looking at the same data, aren't they? Of course. It's just that you can make sure that when you go to a licensed valuer, there is no incentive to either jack the price up or down based on any outcome they're looking for. Our role is to provide what we believe is a likely selling price 
within a likely and reasonable selling period. That leads me on to another question. I think a lot of qu- a question a lot of people have had on their mind for a while, especially given the fairly frustrating market we've had in the last few years in Perth. Obviously, as you said, you guys are employed or paid by the banks, especially on transactions. And sometimes things haven't worked out the way we'd like to or comments are made by a valuer that may restrict the type of loan or the level of loan that a bank will give. With that relationship you've got, I guess there's a question that we need clearing up is, does the industry take any direction from the banks as to, look, we want to be a bit more prudent here. If there's a range, sit on the lower end of the range in terms of your values. Uh, Good question. Despite what popular opinion would suggest, the banks want to do the deal. So the banks want us to come in and value fair and reasonably Mm -hmm. in terms of what we believe the property will sell for. They by no means ask us to value low. What people tend to forget in a valuation report prepared for financial lending is that there's a whole host of other tick boxes, if you like, around risk Mm. that the bank wants us to report on. So they even have their postcodes where there's greater risk. They might have their property classes as greater risk. So as much as the value may hold up, there's these other risk elements within the body of the report that we have to determine and report back to the bank, which may make finance a little more difficult rather than just the valuation figure alone. Someone might buy an apartment in a mediumly dense area of apartments, you know, a specific suburb. You agree with the contract price for the valuation, but you're obliged to note that look, there are also 30 other apartments in this complex or in this location, and that is a risk to the value, the bank will then do what they will with that information. Correct, Trent. It's highly unlikely that value would argue with a selling price if it had been marketed properly Mm. to the broader market, uh, not just within the developer sales area, to the broader market. It's a resale and had been open to all potential purchases. However, as I said earlier, it's, it's more a case of If there's a lot of properties on the market of the same, think through from a lender's point of view, if that deal does fall through, then that particular property once again goes back into that supply chain. Mm. So there's there's an element of risk attached to that type of lending. And maybe that bank has already got the mortgage on 10 of those same properties in that complex. Correct. They do measure their level of liability in a particular development, particularly in medium to high density apartment developments. You guys are employed most often by the banks to value against contract of sale and offer an acceptance. What are other situations where a punter off the street would get you guys involved? Yeah, well, interesting question. You're right. If there's a sale, often banks are now relying on the sale, but there are other reasons why they might be requiring valuations. Unfortunately, in Perth, refinances haven't been all that strong and the Mm. investor market has been quite soft. So there's a whole host of reasons for lending purposes. Yep. But look, generally for a few hundred dollars, it could save you thousands in terms of a valuer's professional independent opinion on a property you're either selling or you're buying. Valuers see the history and particularly if it's a localised valuer that understands that market. The valuers see the transactions coming through the system. They'll see the market conditions. They'll see the buyer demographics and a good local valuer can give you good advice as to what properties on the market are over or underpriced. So there's a potential for that consultancy role that a valuer can provide in terms of if you're buying or alternatively selling rather than just a straight out valuation. So are you saying there's a service there where you're in the market to buy, you could come to a licensed valuer and say, look, I want to invest in, we'll use the same example, Wembley. Yes. There's these properties on the market. Can you tell me which ones you believe are actually a good buy? Well, there's obviously also buyers bureaus, which are a little different to what we do in the valuation space. But from a consultancy point of view, that would make a lot of sense to me. If I'm looking at a handful of properties and I'm not sure in terms of value for money, as they all are suitable for my needs, 
which one is best value for money, which one can the valuer recommend. And effectively, the valuer puts themselves in the buyer's shoes in terms of what they would probably look at for good value for money particularly. So that's the buying side there. And the selling side, do you get people come in and say, look, I'm thinking of selling, but I'm not sure whether I'm actually on the money here with what I think it's worth. I don't trust the agents. I'd like an arm's length valuation. Do you get a bit of that? It's rare, but it, it should happen more often because once again, you'll get a range of appraisals. There'll be a variety. We will then come in as an independent expert, local expert, and provide what we think is fair market value. Generally in that, we will also provide uh, potentially a range of value. So that gives the seller that level of comfort in terms of, okay, look, because valuation is an opinion. It's mm. not an exact science. No. So the range certainly does help the vendor in terms of determining what's fair selling price. And that leads on to my next question as to what exactly is a license valuation including? Now, obviously, this is a podcast. We can't throw anything up on the screen, but maybe can we talk through a few of the line items on that page as to what you're getting from that valuation? Obviously, a licensed valuer has mm. done the level of training required to become a licensed valuer, has that has also continued professional development, depending on where they're, which firm they're from and what where they sort of cover. I think that's really important to get a localised skill, particularly in prestige markets or even the eastern suburbs. But the value will do a sales search. We'll look at all the sales in the area. Once again, if they're localised, they'll know them pretty well and would have inspected and valued some of them. They will inspect, they will measure. Uh, A full inspection generally takes between 15 to 25 minutes by the time they measure and visit every room and take detailed notes. In the case of a private valuation, they will provide a detailed report, including sales that are relevant to subject property, plus photos of those sales to help the buyer or seller basically digest in terms of what evidence the value has utilized. A a rental value, is that included? Uh, A rental value can be included, and in all finance reporting, rental values are always required. Also a breakdown of the land component plus the depreciated added value of the improvements, i.e. the land plus the improvements which equal end value based on comparable sales. What about development potential? Is it is that an add-on, you know, or is that part of a normal valuation report? Valuers are skilled at doing that. The development valuations are a little different in terms of, as you would know, when there's a development site and there might be a small house on it, often that house is worth very little other than a little bit of holding income mm. and potentially initially some tax benefits. But effectively, most of those improvements are worth next to nothing. Mm. So it's a land site depending on the zoning yep. and the local planning scheme, which really does determine value in the end. But that's not something that the banks are interested in, is it? They're not hanging their hat on someone going and developing that land in terms of a finance valuation. But I guess you could go to a licensed valuer and say, look, I'm looking to do a development here. Can you give us an idea of what the end results would be on this? Correct. Once again, the banks are always interested in what we call the highest and best use. So Mm. if it is a development site, the banks will want us to value it accordingly as a development site. doesn't seem to work out for us as clients, though. I'd love to be able to get a valuation based on what it could be next year, but they don't seem to give us that valuation. No, that crystal ball we've left behind, Mm. no one can really determine. But the good news is, and I've just come back from over east and think about the Sydney and Melbourne market, you think about where our market's placed at the moment, you could almost say I'd rather be buying or investing into our market mm. on the back of some low conditions over the last three years as opposed to some of those peak conditions Jumping over off there. Jumping a burning ship, yeah. That's right. So the banks do want us to once again value highest and best use, but once again, they would attach greater risk regardless of the number 
they would attach greater risk to those type of lending situations. And that leads us on to the cost. You've mentioned a couple little price points yep. there, but can we run through the different levels of service that would be provided and just a round number of what yep. these would cost? I find a lot of the time people are too scared to ask for help because they're not sure what the response on the cost is going to be. So if we get it out on the table, yep. people might be more comfortable with seeking a bit more clarity. The most difficult thing in terms of pricing or quoting evaluation is that residential property is all so different, mm. whether it's a unit, a single residential property, a development site, etc. It goes on and on and on, and there's different levels of value. But my best example I can give you is if we do evaluation of standard residential or single residential property in yep. the suburbs, a simple one, yep. up to a million dollars, we generally charge between $500 and $600 plus GST. And what about something that's got a full development uh, yep. perspective? Yeah, once again, we'd look at the degree of difficulty, but if we were looking, say, a Belga, Nolamara, Mirabuka, in those sort of near northern suburbs, mm. because there's a range of sales and it's not extremely difficult to pull a value in because of the evidence available to you, then we would adjust our fees accordingly, and that, that might be sort of six, $700. Okay. Um, but the, the level of reporting required for them is far greater, and the yeah. searching of evidence is far more difficult. But and there's more risk appointed to your opinion at that point, isn't there? Essentially, there is. Our, our liability is to the instructing party. Yep. So obviously, if something does go wrong and our opinion is negligent, then we are at uh, great risk in terms of professional advisors. That doesn't help you guys, but it's, I guess that's what people are paying for. It's that they understand how seriously you need to take your job because yep. you've got risk involved in your opinion. And unlike, for example, an agent whose appraisal is nothing you can hang your hat on, you guys are expected to be able to provide valuations that people are hanging their hats on and they obviously better be. Best researched uh, document and advice that we can provide. And and you're right, it is a, a legal document. It is signed off and a license is at stake. Mm. And in many cases, in our case, we'll go through a QRM quality risk management process. So the significant processes before that particular report and that particular assessment gets to you, the member of the public. Yeah, it's been signed off. Correct. Mike, we've touched on some really normal examples there, development sites, standard purchases, refinances, but valuers are engaged to value properties. Many more examples, aren't they? Trent, as I said earlier, this is a passionate side of me that I've been doing for the last two decades plus. Valuers are very underutilised in that respect because we can talk about capital gains tax, GST evaluation, we can talk about stamp duty, internal transfers, we can talk about estate planning, we can talk about litigation and family law valuations. Uh, we can talk about valuations for self-managed super funds, which a prudent accountant would suggest every few years that maybe we do need to get an appropriate evaluation. Sort of like an audit on your on your portfolio. Correct. At the moment, I'm pretty sure that the um, requirements are that appraisals are fine, but maybe every few years as a prudent investor in super, they should and have property in their super portfolios. Evaluation would certainly be a worthwhile option. Um, touched on sort of insurance replacements and also valuations for expert witness reports, estate and probate advice. So there's a whole host of reasons. These that are all touchy situations, aren't they? You know, they insur- your house is burned down or your family has been divorced or someone's passed away. These are all situations where I guess sometimes people stop worrying about the value and that becomes less of a priority because other things are happening in their lives. But sometimes I guess people have lost a bit of opportunity there if they haven't sought the right advice. Absolutely. And in many of those cases, the litigious cases, the property assets are often the most valuable in terms of the profile or the estate. And they're the ones that obviously always are in dispute. Mm. And there's always opinions, particularly around residential valuation, there's always an emotion attached to it. So in that respect, the value will come in as an independent, take the emotion out of it, 
and determine a value where you can then further negotiate around that value. What about land tax? Do you guys get involved in that at all? Obviously, it's the value of general in the government that Landgate, decides yeah. that from Landgate. But a lot of the time at the moment, we're getting big land tax bills for land that maybe is dropped yep. a lot. Do you guys get involved in that? Are you guys part of that decision making? We're definitely not part of the decision making as it's as you touched on Landgate. We don't happen to do a lot of valuation disputes in that space, but it is certainly a role that a valuer can play Great. in terms of determining not only land tax, but also GRVs, gross rental values. Mm for local council rates. Yeah, for example, if you're doing a subdivision, a lot of, uh, obviously, a lot of situations you need to pay public open space or an outline development plan, this can be tens of thousands of dollars and that's based on the GRV. You're saying that we could get a value in to have a different perspective? Well, well, obviously, depending on the data that's utilised to determine value, particularly as our residential markets have been soft over the last three years, particularly, if you're looking at evidence pre that time, Mm. the chances are that evidence is inflated. Well, that's the reality. There's so many properties out there. It's understandable that Landgate can't get a live update every year. So they currently are using three years ago's data. Apparently, it's going to come out fairly soon, a new update. But up to this point, we're sitting on highly inflated uh, land GRVs, which affect those costs for us. So it's great to know that more updated value can be arranged, which may reduce our development costs significantly. Well, Trent, just in concluding that, you're right. When you talk about Landgate, they will be doing bulk valuations and modelling. Mm. One of the differences is that we as valuers will be doing property inspections. Yeah. And, and often with a property inspection, you can really, uh, it helps assist you determine true value, whether it be a GRV or a value for land tax purposes, and often it's an expert that specifically focuses on that particular locality. For me, for the few hundred dollars it costs to get that, that would save thousands of dollars in many cases. Yes. Mike, thanks again for your time. I hope hopefully have you again soon. All right, today we are talking East Perth for our suburb spotlight, and we are going to get straight into this with the number one agent in that suburb. It's Brendan Smith from LJ Hooker. Brendan, thanks for coming in to have a chat about this very interesting pocket of Perth. It is that. It is very diverse. Always lots happening, lots changing in East Perth. That's a fantastic suburb, but a real mix of everything really there. A lot of stories. I see East Perth as having, I can say this in both a positive and negative connotation, the most opportunity for growth in the inner CBD. Why? because I think it's missing so many key demographic factors Mm -hmm. and cultural factors that Mm -hmm. it needs to have. Yep. But two, it's already got the population and the infrastructure if you provided those services, geez, what a buzzing place it could be. You're right. There's so many really good things about it, particularly, you know, you look at the Optus Stadium and what that's done for the area and what that's going to continue to do over the years. But I think, you know, places like, you know, your Adelaide Terrace and your Royal Streets and other parts which are really suffering sort of from that vibe and having the the commercial aspect kick along there. It sort of lets some of the areas down. But look, there is things like Activate Perth, which are trying to be active in those spaces, John Carey, and and trying to push into those areas and trying to revitalise certain spots. But it is still a work in progress. There's still more that can be done. You know, I wish there was a cafe strip, a bigger shopping centre or whatnot that accompanied Mm. the Royal Street IGA thing. You can't rely on that for the whole suburb. There's a Mm. massive hill in between the river and Royal Street. And I think if you were going going to really create a vibe, uh, a lifestyle, a community around the riverside of East Perth, there really needs to be some commercial investment into creating a community shopping centre. Yeah. They've talked about uh, the top of Bronte Street and the old girls' school. They've talked about redeveloping those sites and and Woolworths and a few of those expressed interests in, in actually doing that you're right there needs to be a hub and there needs to be a main 
point in calling because you're right. The uh, the local IGAs only go so far with sort of keeping people in the area because you want to, if you if people are going to live in the area, you want to keep people in the area. You want to keep the money in the area as well. You don't want to have to you know give people a reason to, to drive elsewhere. You know the old paradigm of build it and they will come doesn't work for everything. But mm. in this situation, I really think that there is just screaming out this opportunity to turn East Perth into a fantastic city substitute to being in Elizabeth Key, for example. Mm. Mm. East Perth got it all there. It's just waiting to be filled up by uh, local government and community. I sort of say that East Perth is the sporting sort of hub mecca of Perth. I mean, if you're in, in East Perth in, in any part of it, you're only ever five or ten minutes away from nearly every major sporting event that Perth's going to have between... Optus, the Wacker, Gloucester Park, NIB, you are really close to everything there. So I think if you've got a sporting uh, inclination, and we are seeing a lot of supporters that are out of town wanting to get places close to the city to come to the football. So those things are those things are happening. But you're right, there's still more they can do on the uh, other fronts, I think, yeah. You just mentioned it. There's so many of these factors that I think so many other suburbs would be just screaming out mm. for a chance to have yep. in their community. And, yep. and East Perth's got it all right there straight away. Yeah, It just seems to me to miss that community vibe. And if we can bring that in, that will be fantastic. Mm. Let's talk about it, just explaining the boundaries of East Perth, right? Yeah. Yep. The features. So a lot of people wouldn't realise that the whole beautiful Claysbrook Cove area, that's East Perth. We tend to look at it in sort of four different parts. You know, you've got the, you even even go a bit further, go on the other side of the Graham Farmer Freeway and you've got the old East Perth out towards where the power station, the old power station used to be. Then you've got the redevelopment area where Claysbrook is, which was late 90s, where um, a lot of investment went in there into the Claysbrook Inlet. What did that used to be? That was just that was just the old runoff yards, yeah. the old stream. That was just where, where the old rubbish, that was where they, people, these, the old industries used to pour whatever they used to pour down the drain. Yeah. And they used to end up there. So that was, uh, they've certainly spent a lot of money there. And then you've got the sort of inner city parts like Hay Street and Adelaide Terrace, which is more sort of your commercial and bustling. And then I think you could probably make the distinction that places like Terrace Road probably has a different has a different vibe and a different feel altogether. So it's a big, broad thing, and it's hard to generalise about um, East Perth. It's got a lot of nuances. Let's wind it back like we always do. How did East Perth start? Yeah, I won't give you exact dates, but it's early sort of turn of the centuries, um, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. It's the industrial part of where, where Perth started. So the old power station, the old coal-powered power station sort of uh, started up there and was running power into Perth for many, many years. And it was there because of the train line, because the train line used to run all the way through, so it used to bring coal in and that's where they used to do it. The old gas works was nearby as well, so the two sort of main industries in in the area for a number of years, yeah, and actually going back even further than that, the old uh, the old colonial uh, cemetery at the top of the hill, which has been there what since. A spooky uh, <laughs> place that is. Tell you what, um, what a useless place as well. Well, you know, it's, as I said, it's a brave uh, developer that takes on the exhumation of that site to put apartments or do anything substantial there. It's been talked about, but um, nothing tangible, I think, is coming through. It that. frustrates me. It's it's such a prime location to build a brand new structure plan community in East Perth that mm. provides all those services, brings in the uh, boutique shopping centre, gives a Claremont vibe to mm. East Perth because mm. the money's there. Yeah. Such an opportunity, but instead it's a void of dead grass and people that are <laughs> without being disrespectful people yeah. that have been passed away generations and generations no one's got a clue who these people are yeah uh, really separating what is that nice area of clay's brook yeah. and royal street and whatnot with the rest of east perth which is you know obviously again islandized by the parking lot uh mm. queen's gardens mm. uh, the wacker 
yeah then that gives so much opportunity there to fill it in and provide a bit more vibe the, the the great thing about the area is the public open spaces are people's front yards and backyards and i think that's really a lot of the lifestyle thing that we uh, we do tend to push people is you know you get a lock up and leave lifestyle around east perth generally and you get the benefit of having uh, the public open spaces is your as your backyard or front yard if you've got kids or even if you don't if you're walking the dog which someone else maintains and i think to your point yeah, the the cemetery is probably an underutilised part of that, which could be another public open space that could be done better. There's certainly they're spending money down at Wellington Square, which is which is good. There's a master plan down there about um, reinvesting into that. So mm-hmm. all those things are good. I mean, the amount of I think if you generally look at where the money's being spent, it's been a lot of it's being spent down the eastern end of the town, um, a, a, even outside of Optus, um, which I think is a really good thing for people getting in now and for the next five, ten, twenty years plus. I think the the whole theme of this this suburb is opportunity. Hopefully yep. from 20 years from now, we mm. do really see that investment from the government. Again, yeah. you look at Waterbank, yeah. right? Obviously hasn't started yet. Should have, it was planned to have started five years ago. Mm. But when that comes in, hopefully that's another boost to uh, that community vibe. You know, I think we're one of the very few suburbs around Perth just generally where, you know, the expansion of, of, of properties and, and, and population to be able to move into an area is, is so great. You know, there's there's the scope is, you know, for another 5,000 dwellings that can be created there and probably even more so oh, yeah. in, in the longer term. But I think when you look at all major cities, the more population in an area, the better. It probably just hasn't been executed right yet. There's been a lot of false starts with obviously changes to market conditions. But I think, like anything with real estate, if you take a long-term view of an area and where you get into, East Perth is as good as anywhere in Perth at the moment. Market conditions, I want to segue into that. Mm-hmm. Uh I believe East Perth was the first suburb, the first uh, canary uh, <laughs> in the coal mine to have demonstrated the weakness in Perth's market on the oversupply point. Yep. Uh, it's where the first signs of oversupply came in in the apartment space of which most of East Perth is dominated and it still is feeling a lot of those uh, ramifications today, isn't it? Yeah, East Perth's at the point in when the market, you know, certainly when we're going through the boom market, East Perth was right up there. Big money. Big money and big money for investors too. Like some of the rents that were achieved uh, over those periods were fantastic. So a lot of people did get into secondary properties and third properties in and around East Perth. Now, obviously, we've had a four or five year correction around there and it has been a bit of a slow burn and there hasn't been a lot of great news about it. And, and we probably still haven't found our feet. We're still still struggling with a bit of a supply issue based on the fact that investors haven't sort of come back into that area as strong as we want. The downsizers too, you know, some of the some of the older generation have, have maybe lost a bit of money, so they've gotten a bit cautious about necessarily jumping in the levels that they used to. All right, let's go from cheapest to most expensive. Mm-hmm. But Contrary to the other suburbs we talk about, I think it's really important for you to give us a bit of background on, look, this is what you can buy this for, Mm. but it used to be this. Can you give us a bit of background? So starting from a one-by-one crap box in Terrace Road, Mm. and then maybe a newer one-by-one, and then all the way up to the most expensive stuff you've seen sold. Can you tell us what you can buy in for now, and maybe what it used to have been five years ago? Yeah, so look, some of your really old flats and units, you know, you were looking at $350,000 for sort of one-bedroom stuff down on Terrace Road, and now you're looking at sub-200, you're looking at sort of 150 to 175. For the same place. For the same place, and the the opportunity with those, some of those sites obviously is um, development 
development sites. So it's a you know just to, to get into those areas and then hold on to them, and they you could get bought out. They'd all be positively geared right now, wouldn't they? Most stuff in Perth really start should start to be given the interest rate drop yeah, and the tightening rental. It's getting market. it's getting better. It's getting better. Your standard one bedroom again was selling around four hundred thousand. You can pick them up high uh, high twos now. So wow. your your standard run of the mill stuff on Adelaide Terrace. Your two-bedroom stuff was up to six hundred, seven hundred thousand, and this is just sort of more your basic product. And now, some of it's high three, some of it's low fours. Three bedrooms, you know, seven hundred, seven eight hundred. Sorry, now it's uh, looking at you know like four fifty. That's a home. Mm. That's a home in the city for four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. So huge correction, but interestingly enough, the premium market as you go up, it doesn't necessarily always apply. Now I've I've got a theory about how the apartment market's been commoditized a bit, in terms of everything has become very samey. So buyers have been sort of voting on their feet just purely based on value. Very analogous. Yeah, exactly. So if you're not the cheapest, you've got to have, you'll have to have a point of difference somewhere yes. in there. Otherwise, if you don't have that, then you you're just going to be you're you're in gonna, the pack. exactly. Yeah. But yeah, some of the more expensive stuff. Look, everything has corrected. If you've reinvested back into the properties they're the ones that have probably held their value that that's probably where that's probably where the opportunity is still appealing to that luxury market Mm. because there always will be a market for the penthouses and the sub penthouses and as we know generally the people they're not bothered by the extra hundred thousand dollars as long as it meets their needs you know you've got stuff in east perth which harks back to the 70s and 80s and probably the bulk of the stuff is probably late 90s early 2000s a lot of the stuff's getting to the age where it does need some capital improvement and we're talking more than painting and carpets we we really are i mean you've got if you're going to be serious about holding your value in this market or improving your value you really do need to stripping it back to the concrete and a lot of people don't want to roll up their sleeves and do it but the smart people that are doing it are actually seeing the uh the the results out of it i think that's because most people who buy an apartment and they're not living in it they view it as that investment property where they want the highest return on investment so they want to invest mm. the least and get as much rent as they can but at yeah. some point in time everyone and especially in apartment space and a villa space need to understand that there is a shelf life yeah. to what you're you're selling what you're renting out and just like with commercial property at that 25 yeah. 30 year mark you need to dump 30 yep. grand into something and yep. start again you're not immune that's the, that's the thing you know when you look at a lot of the stuff around the city area now it's getting the 10 year old stuff is um, showing its age yeah. you know and um, wooden malamide kitchen doors and yep. we all know that vogue look there is a certain sort of theme of, of most most sort of standard apartments in the city area you have to reinvest and you have to look at what's on trend and you have to do more than what you used to before not only if you're looking at reselling but if you're looking at even just leasing out and getting a good leasing rate you know mm. there's your new competition you with like places like your view tower that have just come online and some other smaller developments um, there's a lot of competition out there for new versus old and it's a little bit like buying a new car it's people do want that feeling of living in something new that they don't that no someone one's else been in no before. one's no yeah. one's been in before but, but you do pay a premium for it so but you are old you know second hand versus new stuff is competing against each other look it doesn't matter when the market's booming and everyone's FOMO and there's not enough apartments but right now that's not the situation when mm. the market has choice they won't choose you if you don't have a reason to choose choose mm. you in the first place i want to speak a little bit about the Claysbrook space as well because they're mm. really quite 
beautiful townhouses. That French Riviera feel is yeah, yeah. pretty fantastic. What are yeah. they selling for these days? You're depending on which ones you're looking at. If you're not off off waterfront, you're looking at your starting points around sort of a million dollars, and then from there, for sort of the bigger and better ones, you're sort of one and a half, and then you head down to the waterfront. You really your entry level down there is around two million dollars. Have they held their value more than most because of the tightness of supply? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. So there's only there's only a select number of homes in the area, and I think the smart money is realizing that there's very few enclaves like of homes that close to the city precinct in Perth and and on the waterfront. So yes, they have. But uh, but again, coming back to the original point, you still have to have maintained these homes because they're getting sort of twenty years old. The ones the people that actually have reinvested and actually have actually kept their place current, the ones that have probably been seeing the the better outcomes and but they they're getting you know as high as sort of you know three and four million dollars down there some of the bigger ones on the waterfront what's the most expensive thing you've sold in east perth Uh, the most expensive one i've sold in east perth would be just under three million dollars down on vanguard terrace so we had a house down there about 18 months ago that would be quite a special and unique place if i'm a developer have i got any opportunity of doing anything in in east perth unless i'm a serious mogul it's interesting because your lead times with developments are such that there probably is a good time to be getting in because we probably are coming out of this downturn cycle and probably heading into better times over the next couple of years. So I'd say yes, but yeah, you obviously have to... What is it though? What is it that I could develop in East Perth? Because it certainly isn't a triplex. No, you'd, you'd be looking at a sort of medium to small scale boutique sort of development um, or you're going or you're obviously one of the big guys like a Blackburns or a Finbar and you're obviously already got earmark sites out to do, you know, one yeah. to 200 units. But I think there's a real, I think there's a real need for um, for more lifestyle and luxury um, apartments and properties, less sort of uh, maybe rental and investment units. Mm. I think they've sort of been flooded and they've been done to death. Um, there's enough of those for another cycle, I think. Well, there is. And I think... When you look at the developments that are really pitched to more that sort of owner-occupier market, they're the buildings that have sold out best. What does a downsizer actually want? Because we really do want to attract downsizers into that city in East Perth area. Yeah, it's not a service department, that's for sure. It's not a service department. And you know what? What people really focus on these days is how much are the strata levies, how much are my ongoing costs. I don't really necessarily care about the pools, gyms and all that. It's nice to have, but I don't need to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, I think everyone's suffering from a bit of cash flow you know, cash flow issues out there. So people are more concerned with what are my ongoing costs and is it a place that I can live in? So developers, if they get the end product right, I think uh, they're the ones that are doing, they're going to do well. Brendan, what is the median house price for units and houses in East Perth? At the moment. mm -hmm. if you had that in your pocket, what would you buy? It For units at the moment, it's 417,000. And for houses, it's 945,000. I think I'll start with houses. I think that's the real opportunity. I think there's some really undervalued homes in the area in really good positions. There's some of like the Macy streets and some of the some of the streets that are just off waterfront are offering some really good value if you had a million dollars and some of them that are requiring some renovation. I think you can get into those at a really good price and there's probably a whole lot of upside if you're prepared to roll out your sleeves. So on housing, I, I would say look for... Around Macy Street, that sort of option. Macy, idea. Arden... If you don't have that $2 million sitting in your bank account for a waterfront stuff, I think one or two streets back offers 
Really good value, really good value. Okay. With units, it's it's a little bit trickier. I think either you just own your decision and go one of two ways. Either you go in and buy something brand new and just and just go and live in it and love it and enjoy the lifestyle for what it is that it offers at 400000 and just go, you know what, we're going to buy something and we're going to enjoy it for the next five years. Yeah. Or you look for something that does require renovation. And I try think, and make some sweat equity. Yeah, make some sweat equity. I think if you try and c- combine the two, you, you, you don't really sort of get a, an outcome of either. Well, you want to enjoy your life, that's for sure, <laughs> if that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. I've, so I did hear something that was said a little while ago that whether you make a little bit of money, a lot of money, or you don't make any money, you may as well get something that you actually get enjoyment out of for the next one, two, five, ten years. You see, sometimes people buy properties simply on the premise to make money, mm-hmm. and unfortunately that hasn't worked out for a lot of people in the last ten years. So A, they haven't enjoyed it, and B, they've lost money. Yeah. So East yeah. Perth uh, at least ticks one of those boxes at the moment. It does. Enjoying the lifestyle of being close to some of Perth's best assets. Uh, even if you're not a sporting fan in East Perth, the fact that you've got every major event coming, basically coming through Optus Stadium at the moment is fantastic. There's no other place in Perth where you can have that on your doorstep. It's, yeah. You know, 10, min- 10, 15 minutes away at worst. Brennan Smith, thank you very much for coming in, Matt. I appreciate it. And hopefully next year we'll have uh, some more exciting news about East Perth. Yeah, I think it's on the up and up. And uh, I think this, it's certainly a good time to be getting in. Watch this space. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!